All right. Well, welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. My name is Mike Wilmer. I'm the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith. I'm so excited that you guys are here with us. Thank you so much for your well wishes for my birthday. Um, I absolutely love my birthday. Um, I just do. I, I, love, I love opportunities and reasons to celebrate, and why not my birthday? I'd celebrate yours with you. Um, I, like, I like my birthday. I just look at it as I'm going to be 43 years old on Tuesday, and, um, and I am so thankful for every one of those years. Not, they've not all been good. Some of them have been challenging, some more challenging than others, but I am so thankful for every one of them. So this morning, we are continuing in our series that we have been in. This is the third week of this series we've entitled Game Changer. And so just as a really quick review, if you've missed any of the messages, you can go on to rfcpeoria.com, click on the listen link, and you'll be able to see and listen to, not see, but listen to all the messages in this series. And so First of all, the idea of the series title Game Changer comes really from my love for sports. Um, I, I have such a, a, a dramatically huge love for sports. Some would say almost an unhealthy love for sports, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree in some moments. Um, I yell at my television watching sports. Am I the only one who does that? If I'm watching my football team and he's made a bad throw, I'm like, what are you doing? If I'm watching my baseball team and I don't agree with the pitch the pitcher just threw because it just got hit 400 feet, I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you throw that pitch? You know, so I'm yelling at my television. But the idea of Game Changer came from that, 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 that arena simply because, you know, there are skills and talents that people have that I believe just are game changers in life. But today, and for this series, it's got a little bit different context for me. I'm actually thinking about the idea of game changer as that aha moment where you see something that you previously had not seen. And if you read scripture long enough, that's going to happen to you on a consistent basis. I have been studying the Bible for 20 years, uh, preaching the gospel for 14, 15 of those 20 years, um, and I have every single time I sit down with God in the Word, I see something that I had not seen before. It hits me in a way it hadn't hit me before. And so that's even the whole premise of this series. And so in part one of this series, we looked at the, uh, a very popular story of Jesus taking a nap. That's what he wanted. That's what he was doing. That's what his desire was to get in a boat, told the disciples we're going to the other side, and he decided to go to sleep. Of course, the story continues, and we have this, this horrendous storm. The, the boat begins to be filled with water. They all become fearful that they're going to drown. And um, the, the title of that message was simply Fearless, and how in being fearless and following Jesus, the three things we pulled out of that passage of Scripture was that following Jesus means making bold moves in our lives. We talked about how fear can keep us captive to where we are comfortable and that becoming fearless requires a change in our perspective. You know, I believe God has an abundant life for you to leave. Jesus even said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and give you more abundant life, life to the full. Many different translations say a lot of different things. But the whole premise is that there is this life that God has for you, this abundant life that he desires for you to live. And they, one of the ways and one of the most important ways to accessing that life is to be fearless and get out of our comfort zone. And so that is one of the, that's what we talked about in part one. And then in part two, last week, we talked about the idea of pain 
and what pain looks like. What's the purpose of pain? We unpacked a few powerful truths in the popular story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And so one of the things, like I said, is an aha moment, a previously unseen thing even for me in that series and in that message was the whole idea of Lazarus being raised from the grave is something that so many churches and pastors and preachers and even my, my, I myself have focused on the miraculous healing of Lazarus and how he can raise dead things and how, how amazing that is. And that is absolute truth. It, there's, there's nothing untrue about God raising dead things, even dead things that have been dead in our lives. But the whole, pro, the whole point of that story was not the miraculous truth of being raised from the grave. The whole point of that story was the pain that they would endure, that it would point to the Father and give an opportunity for God to receive glory because the aha moment for me was just a few months, weeks to months later, Lazarus would die again, this time permanently. And I was thought that was crazy because here it is, this miraculous thing that Jesus raised him from the grave and yet just a few months later he would die again. His sisters would have to mourn again. The community would have to mourn his loss twice and I'm thinking, what was then, if the purpose wasn't the life of Lazarus, what was the purpose? And then Jesus even answered that. He said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so we talked about how our pain can, can be used as a platform for God's glory. We, we mentioned that our personal circumstances are not evidence of how God feels about you. That's a very critical thing to understand in our journey of faith is that your personal circumstance is not evidence of how God feels about you. We equate what we're going through to how God feels about us. And that's just, that's a very dangerous connection to try to make because God feels one way about you. It never changes. It's always been the same. It will always be the same. He loves you in such a way that he sent his son to die for you. Now, I love every single person in this room, and there's very, very few things I wouldn't do for everyone in this room, but one of them is I would not send my son to die for you. I love you, but that's my boy. I'm not sacrificing him for you. That's maybe selfish and unchristian-like of me, and that's okay because I am human. But God loves us in such a way that he sacrificed his only son. So his, our personal circumstance is not an evidence of how God feels about us. We also talked about how we have a caring king, that he cares about what we need, and he responds to us in that manner. If you look at that story a little bit more detail, you see Mary and Martha running to Jesus, each saying the same thing, but Jesus responding very differently. Martha needing rebuke and Mary needing encouragement, and he did just that for both. And we have a caring king. And the third point that we made in that message last week was we talked about how using our pain as a platform to point the points to the Father. And that's what I love. That's the greatest thing I love about a testimony and, and of what God has done in our lives because it takes the pain that we have experienced, that we are experiencing, or that we will experience, and helps us point everyone to the Father to see what God is doing in and through our lives that brings him glory will ultimately cause someone else to believe. We had ourselves, uh, I, I was thoroughly impressed and completely blown away by our, our exchange on Thursday night where we brought all of our small groups together for one night of teaching and fellowship and engaging with one another, engaging with God's word. And I was 
just blown away by the atmosphere, the environment, the attendance, everyone being there. I mean, it was a powerful moment, and we got to spend some great time going through this idea of how pain, how God can use our pain for his glory. And so uh, if you're not connected to a small group, I would encourage you to get connected because they are, uh, are life-changing. And so, so for today, we're going to look at another very powerful story, and we're going to focus, I'm going to, I'm going to share a passage of scripture with you that we're going to focus on a different point of this passage than you would normally see, and then we're going to get into a teaching from Jesus that I believe um, will transform our lives this morning. And so, if you, t- you can turn with your Bible, I'm only going to be here for just one verse, but it'll be up on the screen, Luke chapter 9, verse number 23. Luke 9, 23, the Bible says, Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, there's a whole lot in that passage. I think perhaps one of the hardest passages in all of the Bible to live out is found right there. Because the first phrase, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. That is ridiculous because I want what I want, right? I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And any other way is often not good enough or simply wrong. If we're being honest, myself included, if it's not my way, then oftentimes it's the wrong way. Now, maybe I'm the only one willing to admit that truth But that's how we are. That's how we act in relationships. That's how we act in our jobs. That's how we act everywhere. But for the for the for the context of our message, I want to focus on a different phrase, where it says, "Take up your cross daily." I want to focus on one word today, and it's the word "daily," not sacrifice, not taking up my cross, not giving up my own way. All those things are a given if you're going to follow Christ. But I want to focus on the word daily. It almost echoes the idea of a habit. Habits are something we do consistently. Habits are something that we do daily. A habit defined is a daily routine of behavior that is repeated to the point of which it happens unconsciously, making it almost unrecognizable to yourself. Let me say that one more time because that's a whole lot of words. A daily routine of behavior that is repeated to the point of which it happens unconsciously, making it unrecognizable to yourself. Here's what I've come to realize, that there are habits that I have, things that I do daily that I don't even realize that I do daily. Now, I have been graced with a fantastic wife who's beautiful, who's smart, who's right, who's a lot of things, but she also helps me realize those things that I do daily that I don't even recognize. And like I said before, because it's my way, I'll argue that. She'll say, this is what you, I'm like, no, I don't. You're just not seeing it properly, right? You're wrong. Eh. Never say those words. I'm still learning because she's not wrong. Ever. Yeah, I know. So, but the idea of this habit means I get into this routine daily and that it affects me in such a way that I don't even know 
what I'm doing or how I'm responding or what I'm saying. Matter of fact, we all, and here's what I, I, we all know what habits we should have. We all know what we should be doing daily, but we have a, well, here's the challenge. We have a hard time seeing the habits that we actually have. There are some habits that are just difficult to see. They're just difficult to even comprehend. Hence the reason why we have relationships, which is why I referred to my wife. I have my wife for more than just a trophy. I have my wife to help me to see some things that I don't necessarily see in myself. I have other relationships that help me see things that I don't necessarily see in myself. And the older I get and the more time I spend with God, the the more mature I become, the more often I listen to some of those people. Not all of them. Because some of them I just think are just foolish. But I do listen to some of them. I, I hear what they're saying. And I, there used to be a time when someone would say, well, pastor, this is what you're saying. And this is how it's coming off. And my response would simply, no, it's not. You're wrong. And that would be my response. I mean, that's an immature response to everything. Right? And that would be my response. It's only through my maturity and my growing that I'm starting to realize, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not right. Often. It takes, a, it takes a certain level of maturity to even admit that as a man. So, but most of us on some level don't even, we're not even ready for that type of relationship. Hence the reason why if you have that kind of relationship in your home, it usually, it, it usually ends in conflict. Slamming heads together, angry fights, yelling, maybe in some of y'all's homes, cussing. I don't know. But the reality is we're not ready for that type of relationship. So, but this leads us to our game-changing truth today that we're going to get into is that we are what we repeatedly do. Okay? You are what you repeatedly do. If you repeatedly doubt, then you are doubt. If you repeatedly cuss, then you have you have sin in your life. You're not, please don't ever say, I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little. Stop that mentality of thinking that just means you're a sinner and you willfully want to sin. Because that's the reality. We are what we repeatedly do. Most of the time, we don't even see the importance of what we do daily. As a matter of fact, if we were to be honest with ourselves, then we would be able to say, this is what I have done that has led me to where I am. Doesn't matter what the context is. Every relationship you are in, every situation in your life, every place that you find yourself, if you were honest with yourself, you could point to a couple of behaviors that you, that became habits that led you to right where you are. Matter of fact, I, I've come to realize that as, as everyone, most of you in this place know that I, I'm bivocational as the marketing director at Chick-fil-A as well as pastoring this church. And I've come to realize that. And it's been several years since I've been in that kind of, that day-to-day operational business to see this, but people, I have come to realize a, 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 a fantastic truth, and it exists inside of church and the faith as well, the same way, is that people sometimes can't help but sabotage themselves as their habit. They just can't help it. There's people that I, that I work with that they literally just cannot help but to sabotage. It's very easy to work for someone. Show up on time, do your job. That's really not hard to do. Yet somehow in this process of thinking, people sabotage themselves. They just can't help but show up late. They can't help but 
when I do get there, I'm not really doing my job the way that I should. And, and I've seen this, I, I've always known this to be true, but having been out of that world for so long, I kind of didn't see it as much as I do now. And it's like, wow, it's, it becomes, there's these things that we repeatedly do that I believe sometimes we just can't help but to, but to torpedo our own efforts. And so to illustrate this thought a little bit more, we're going to look at a powerful truth in a very popular passage of Scripture in John chapter 15. We're going to be in the first eight verses of John 15. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to come back and break it down quite a little bit. So in this, in this story, to give you a little bit of context before we get going, in this story, this is the story of Jesus talking to the disciples as the, as the true vine. So this, this is just... This is just could be hours, days, nobody really fully understands or knows, but this just is a very short period of time before Jesus is about to be arrested. And he's teaching his people. He's trying to leave a legacy. He's trying to impart wisdom and, and the power of God into his disciples. And, and he says, and, and, and prior to this, this moment taking place, this conversation taking place, the Bible says that they, they got up and left. So this is like a, a walking journey conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And this is what the Bible says in John chapter 15. It's important to understand this is a walking and journey conversation. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. So John chapter 15, verse number one, the Bible says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will pr produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Verse 5. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers and, and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, may ask and ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. One consistent theme you're going to hear in this series is all about bringing glory to God and seeing God's glory take place. But in this passage of Scripture, as we dissect this passage of Scripture, there's three things we're going to get into. And, and the first thought is simply this. We have to remain connected. We must remain connected. Look at very, the very first verse of John chapter 15. He says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. Now here's why I said this walking journey conversation was important because here's, and this is, this is my thought process through this. I cannot necessarily substantiate this biblically because it does not necessarily say this, but Jesus was such an illustrative teacher that he would use things. The Bible says that as, as they journeyed and walked, they saw a fig tree, and Jesus spoke to that fig tree, right? And in that, he taught his disciples. So I, my mind goes right to that imagery and that thought and that teaching where he's actually probably come upon a grapevine, which wouldn't have been uncommon in that area in that time because the two greatest, the two biggest and most thing, mo things you would see in most fields and most buildings were a grapevine and olive trees. 
That's what you would find in that reason. So it would not have been unusual to them come upon a grapevine. And in my, in my imagery of my mind, I, I picture Jesus grabbing a handful of, of, of grapes on this vine and saying, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. And the disciples would have understood this teaching because, like I said, all of this was normal for them to see. And matter of fact, Jesus when he spoke this, they probably said, oh yeah, they made the connection and the relationship between the grapevine and the gardener. Because they understood for a grapevine to be fruitful, it had to be gardened. And it had to have someone tending to that grapevine. And, and so they would have understood this relationship. Then Jesus says something very interesting. He says in verse 2, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit. So that, that, pat, that part of that scripture actually kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Any, anybody, am I the only one who has read the words of Jesus and kind of thought, what's wrong with you? Okay, so I'm the only one willing to admit that. You guys just want to laugh at me. Okay, that works for me too. But the re, I, I, I hear Jesus read some, say some things, and I'm just like, dude, what are you talking about, man? For real? He says he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit. We're talking about the son of God. The son of God really has branches that don't bear fruit. Anybody ever, that's one of those aha thoughts for me. This is Jesus and he has branches that don't bear fruit. All right, we'll get to that for another moment, do that another time. But so let me explain why this bothers me. I read this and that was the first thing that jumps off and it's the most obvious that I'm thinking Jesus doesn't possibly have branches that don't bear fruit, but it's an interesting thought. The second thought though, and I want to focus on for a few minutes, is simply this. Push the button here. It is simply this. It is, it is possible for this branch to be part of the vine and not bear fruit. It's interesting. You have this vine, you have this grape vine that's full of fruit, and yet it's still possible for this branch to be connected to this vine yet not bear fruit. I find that to be very interesting because when I think about that, this is what's happened to me. This is the aha moment. Hopefully, I act and respond on this aha moment, but Here's what I've come to realize. This is what I feel like Jesus said to my heart when I read that, that there's a branch connected to a vine that's not bearing fruit. And it's simply this thought, and it'll be up on the screen. It is possible to be present, but not connected. It is possible to be present, but not connected. Now, I have found this, if I can be a little open, a little transparent with you this morning, I have found this to be true in my own life. Maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't, but maybe you've come home from work, maybe from a long day, you're a little exhausted, you're a little tired, and you walk into your home, and you have a wife or your husband, you have your children, maybe you have a, a, a wild animal running around in your house, not your children, and all you really want to do is just sit down and decompress for just a minute. But that doesn't happen. Right? You get inundated with questions and dad, I need this. And wife, I need this. Or husband, I need this. And all these things, they come at you and you really aren't hearing any of it. Am I the only one like that? Am I the only one that he'll come home, he'll sit down, he'll do this. And this is... You hear dad, 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 my daughter's laughing right now because she knows this, dad, 
And you know, I, I kind of hear a faint sound of somebody saying something, but the reality is I'm not hearing because I'm not connected. And I'm just like, and then either one of two things happens, either that child, one of three things happens, either that child just walks away, which hurts my heart, but <laughs> my habit doesn't really care, or that child screams my name and gets my attention, or the person who can get my attention regardless of any situation, my wife, lets me know very, very well, remember that relationship I was telling you, hey, somebody's trying to talk to you right now. So I have found that I have been able to be present in a situation yet not connected to that situation. I can be in the room but not hearing what's going on in that room. How are we, we have relationships that we could probably look at to say, you know, we're present in that relationship, but yeah, there's not really a connection any longer. We're just present. Now I will ask you, where are you like that with God? Because I believe that we are present with God, but just like the branch and the vine, we're not necessarily connected to God. Because I believe it is completely possible to be present and not connected. So it makes me wonder, when we look and evaluate our relationship with God, as a matter of fact, the question even is, do we even evaluate our relationship with God, or we just go through the mundane um, checkbox check responsibilities in our relationship? And I even think today, maybe today you've shown up at church, and it's like, here I am, do you see me? I'm present, kind of like in school, and I don't even know if they do roll calls in school any longer, but it's kind of like in school, they call your name here. Or some smart aleck's like, yep, yo, what up? I'm here. They got to make their presence known, but they're nowhere near connected to what's going on in the room. I think that's oftentimes what church has become for the believer. Here I am. Let me be sure to go say hello to the pastor so he knows that I was in church that day. But that's about the limit of our connection with God. So the question is, are you truly connected to the Father? Is it, and let me tell you, this is going to sound odd coming from a pastor of a church. It is far more important for you to be connected to God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, than it is to be present in church on Sunday. It is so much more important for you to have a connection with God Monday through Saturday than it is for your butt to be warming a seat on a Sunday morning. That being said, I love that you're here on a Sunday morning. I want to fill the room with people here on a Sunday morning, so much so that we have to do it twice on a Sunday morning, just simply because that's more people experiencing the glory of God, hearing the gospel being preached, being challenged to grow and live their life of faith, and doing life and fellowshipping with one another. Those are very important things in the kingdom of God, and none of them should be seen as otherwise, because that's what church is for. It's a place to connect with God. It's to grow, to learn and bear fruit, to connect with others. And these are important. But here's the question. Are you truly connected because you come to church? I would say no. Simply because I can go into my house and I can sit down with my family. Or worse, this has happened a time or two in my house. We sit down for dinner. And I'm on here. I'm on my phone. Oh, let me check that text or that email or 
man, my favorite baseball team is playing in an hour. I'm going to eat dinner so I can watch some game. And, I, and, and I'm not at all engaged in the meal except for the eating of it. And so it is completely possible to be present and not connected. So we have to remain connected. Number two, the second thought that I want you to have from this is you have to remain committed. Remain connected. Remain committed. Verse two through four, the Bible says, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So the process is this. The word of God is planted in you as a seed. This is even more evidence. I've preached this message before, so I'm not going to preach it at length now. This is even more evidence. This passage of scripture is me even more evidence of the idea that I have been saved, that I am being saved, and that I will be saved. Because the, he says, he even says, he says, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. So the gospel of Jesus Christ has already pruned and purified your heart before God so that you inherit the kingdom of God. Yet he still goes on to say there's more pruning, there's more purifying, there's more cutting, there's more shaping. There's all kinds of more that needs to be taken, that needs to take place that you have to remain in him. So don't just leave it at that. We're talking beyond that. And so the process of the word of God is a seed planted in you. And like every seed ever planted, it needs to be watered. It needs to be cared for. It needs to be nurtured. And then it will grow. When it grows, it need, the work is not finished. It then needs to be pruned. It can't just grow wild. If you just let a grapevine grow wild out of control, it would begin to grow in places it's not supposed to be. That would ultimately then kill that vine or... I have come to realize in some, I did a little bit of research and study in the, in the, into the idea of grapevines. If they're not pruned and they're not shaped and they're not structured within the parameters of that grapevine and how it's supposed to grow, it will grow wildly into other places. But the other places it grows will infect its fruit. And while it will still appear fruitful, its taste will be bitter. So now let's look at that in the context of our relationship with God. If you just grow wildly out of control doing what it is that you want to do, yet notice I, I'm the Christian who cusses, or I'm the Christian who doesn't go to church, or I'm the Christian who doesn't give, or I'm the Christian who doesn't love someone, I'm the Christian who wants to condemn the world because of their lifestyle, I'm the yeah, you see where I'm going with that? You become that person, you are actually growing, but what you're growing into, if I may say, without hurting your feelings too much, is what I will say is a poisonous fruit. That's what happens with the grapevine if it's allowed to grow wild and out of control. That's why Jesus says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. If you don't remain in me, I'm not remaining in you. People, we, th we think that Jesus is like, oh, it doesn't make a difference. I can go do whatever I want. He's still, I got Jesus in me. I, I recall a, um, there's a hip-hop artist, a Christian hip-hop artist that my, my kids love and I actually love and I introduced to my children uh, who goes by the name of Lecrae. And, he, and he's, he's, there's a song that they have called, he has called Indwelling Sin. And I, it's one of my favorites because it's the battle between good and, and, and Jesus and sin. And he goes into a, bar, into a, into a um, corner store and he just wants an energy drink. And this is a conversation going on. He says, he says, 
the guy starts asking, oh, you want some rolling papers? Or you want some cigars with that so you know you can go roll yourself up some, some marijuana? Or why don't you go back to the, to the case and get yourself a fifth of Hennessy? He's like, nah, I don't need that. I got Jesus. He says, I got Jesus too, but Hennessy and Jesus go good together. Foolishness, right? But that's sin. That's what it does. And so it's that idea that, oh, I got Jesus too, but Hennessy and Jesus go good together. It's, it's this poison that we radiate from our hearts and our lives simply because we are not continuing to remain in Jesus and allowing him to prune us because the reality is pruning hurts. Pruning is painful and God uses other people to prune. You can open up the word. The word is absolutely going to divide you. It's actually going to cut you deep. I mean, it say it's sharp enough to divide even bone from marrow. So that's pretty sharp. Because modern day practices suggest you have to take a needle and stick it in your bone to pull out marrow. But Jesus says his word can divide it. So here's what happens. God sends people into your lives that want to challenge you, shape you, and mold you. And yet you reject them. Why? Because it's not your way. It's not the way you want it to be, the way you think it should be. And hence the reason why you won't grow. Because we surround ourselves with people who are what I will call yes men. And that's a dangerous place to be. And, and for me as a pastor, I refuse to do it. Not because it's uncomfortable, because it is actually quite comfortable. You know how amazing it would be for me to sit at a table full of leaders in my church and say, I'm going to do this. And they all say, yes. Man, how cool would that be? Everyone agrees with me. This is fantastic. I get to do whatever I want. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That is nuts. That's ludicrous. I, did, I promise you I would not pastor this church long if that's the way it did. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be because I wouldn't pastor. The church wouldn't be here long enough for me to pastor if that's the way it was. Instead, I intentionally surround myself with people who rub me the wrong way. People who say, no, you know what, I don't know. I've had people in a leadership meeting say, Pastor, I, I, honestly, man, I just think that's stupid. And I, 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 for a moment, I have to swallow my tongue because I'm like, you think I'm kidding. That's exactly how I respond almost. And then, but I invite that into my life and into my heart and say, oh, wow, I didn't see it like that. So that, but that's, that's the way God wants to use us with one another. But how would it feel if I came to you and said, you know what? I just want to encourage you. I want to speak something into your life. It's going to be truthful, but it's going to be painful. But every single situation you get into, you just do this. You dig your heels in. You throw up your hands and you defend that position. Come hell or high water, you are not coming against me. How many of you would love me? How many of you would stand in front of 75, 80 people and say that we're thankful for your leadership? Not a lot of people would because then we just, you just attacked everything I think. No way. We don't like that. So, but this process requires sometimes us to go through some monotonous things, some mundane things. And here's what I've come to realize. In the time that I spend with God and the pruning that he does in the word, through prayer, through worship, and through my relationships with other people, sometimes those processes can be monotonous. Sometimes they can be mundane. But here's what, I, here's what I've come to realize. This is up on the screen for you. It's in your notes. If you resist the monotonous, then you will miss the miraculous. If you resist those things, you will absolutely do the miracle, resist, miss the miracle that God wants to do in your life. 
And to illustrate that point for just a moment, to make it a little bit lighter moment than we're having, I want you to turn yourself to the screen. I want you to watch this clip. If you're a sports fan, you've seen this a time or two in your life. So as our tech team cues it up. Here's the running back. Play action. And Manning's going to heave one. Is, oh, there's a flag. This is sick. Put this to music. I don't think he stepped out either. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen. Number 39. Penalty's declined. Result of the play. Touchdown. You have to be kidding me. That is impossible. That is absolutely impossible what he just did. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen in my life. It's in the conversation. Wow. After being fouled. I mean, he was clearly fouled on the play. That and that's is clean. That's not ridiculous. The catch. The most miraculous catch in NFL football history. Two teams I can't stand. I'm a Redskins fan. Hate the Cowboys and the Giants equally. That's actually not true. I'm, I, I hate the Cowboys more than Giants, but oh, whatever. Don't be a Cowboy fan in Illinois. Come on. Be a Bears fan. I'm a Redskins fan because that's the area I lived in. I have a reason to be one. Anyway, I'll get off that soapbox for a moment. <laughs> but we look at that, that video and that image and we think, wow, that was miraculous. And, and some of us would just even say, eh, he got lucky. That was a lucky catch. I mean, come on, for real? That was a lucky catch. I think we do the same thing in life. We look at one another and we look at people's relationships. Oh, well, they just, they just found. If you're struggling in a relationship where you're always choosing the wrong woman or always choosing the wrong man, you look at someone who might have the right one and say, oh, well, you know what? They just got lucky. They just married the right woman or they just landed the right job. If I could just land the right job or marry the right, right, the right man. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. I feel a little flush. Y'all know, know me better than that. <laughs> they just landed the right job or they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It was just luck. And here's the thing. It only looks lucky because life is all about what we're doing when no one else is really watching. Because what you're doing when no one else really is watching is what's going to play out in your life. And if you will look at the screen again, this is very brief. But if you look at the screens again, here's what happened that very same day that Odell Beckham caught that pass. Go ahead and cue that video up if you would. This is him at practice the same day. Oh, no, that was just another one-handed catch. That's ridiculous. Oh, he did it again. Wait a minute. And again. So he was practicing the very thing that you got to see miraculously take place on the NFL football field. This goes to my point that is if you resist the monotonous and the mundane, you will miss the miraculous. He practiced that. That's, see, that's what's foolish about the whole thing. He practiced something that was ridiculous, and then it became even more ridiculous in the context of the game. That was the game-winning catch, by the way. 
So that's the thing you have to understand about when it comes to your life of faith. You're going to have a daily grind. You're going to have a daily journey where you are pouring yourself into the word and, and you're going to be hurt and you're going to be in pain and you're going to be, you're going to have people stab you in the back. You have people cut you. You have the people talk about you, talk down to you. You're going to have all these things take place, but you're staying fast and steady in the word and you're staying in those relationships that sharpen you. And then what's going to happen if you continue that process is you're going to experience something miraculous that everyone else is going to look like look at and say, oh, well, they were just lucky. Oh, they were in the right place at the right time. There's a process to this journey called faith. And if you decide you want to rush the process, you're still going to have an experience, but man, it's going to be painful. Man, it's going to be difficult. Not to say that it can't be successful, but it's going to be far harder than it was ever intended to be. Endure the process. Don't rush the process. Because here's what you are. You are what you repeatedly do. In life, you are what you repeatedly do. And when Jesus tells them in verse 3 that they have already been pruned and purified, he says their heart is already purified. The message has purified them. Now stay with me and I will remain in you. This is the journey. You have been saved you are being saved. You are being sanctified. You are being filled with the Holy Spirit. You are continually being these things and being pruned to grow into this abundant life that Jesus has for you. So let me, re let me define this word remain with the last few minutes of, that I have for you this morning. And then our third point we'll get to in just a second and then we'll wrap this up. So to define this word remain in the original language, it, it means to maintain unbroken fellowship with one. Remain in me to, re, to maintain unbroken fellowship with one. And it, it even has a, a, a contingent definition that, is, that fits this passage of scripture. It says to continually operate in him by his divine influence and power. That's what remaining in Christ means. It means to maintain unbroken fellowship with Jesus. It means to continually operate in his name and by his divine influence and power. And if we are continually doing that, you will see the miraculous take place in your life. That's the reason why I do things like a 90-day tithe challenge that I've done. To give people the opportunity to remain in Christ when it comes to their money so that they can see the miraculous take place in their lives. And I have already heard it and seen it. It's the same thing with prayer. I tell people when someone says, well, where do I study in the Bible? And I say, you know, let's just start with the book of John. This is all about who Christ is, how he loves you. So start there. And when you read that, just keep on reading it. And when you have a statement like, okay, I read it, but I don't get it. Okay, cool. Go read it again. And they come back and say, well, I read it again and I, I still don't get it. Good. You're on the right track. Read it again. And, that's my, and that sounds like horrible advice. Sounds like you're really not helping that person. But I tell them, go read it again. I have done that with someone four or five different times. They read the book of John four or five times. And on the fifth time, he comes back and says, I think I get some of it. I was like, all right, tell me what you get. And we opened it up and went verse by page, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And not only did he get it, but it was in him and he was speaking it. And he was just like, even after the five minutes of our conversation, he's like, how did that happen? I said, because this thing right here is living. 
I could pick up Romeo and Juliet, read it five times, and still not understand anything in it. But if I pick up the Bible and read it four or five times, not only am I going to begin to understand some things, but it's going to get in me. And then I'm going to speak it. And let me tell you something. When you connect what's in you to what you speak, all hell will break loose in your life, but all hell will be subjected to you because you are doing it in the name and the power and in the miraculous thing that God has for you through Christ Jesus. That's the fact. That's what remaining committed to Jesus is. That's what taking up your cross daily is about because this should be something that you are daily committed to. And I know it's hard. We have lives. We have busyness. Trust me. I have two full-time jobs and three children. And all three of my children play sports. And I find myself going from place to place to place to place to place to place and almost seem, am I ever getting anywhere? But the reality is staying connected to the vine, staying connected to Jesus is what's empowered me and enabled me to do all of those things. I don't don't suggest that your life should look like mine by any means. As a matter of fact, don't do it. It's craziness. But if you remain in Christ, not every day is going to be miraculous, but you're going to push through the mundane, the monotonous, and you're going to experience the miraculous by pushing through. Last thing is this, worship team, if you could come and get set. I hope this is making sense for your life in some kind of way this morning. Let me give my worship team a second to come and get set. That's not your cue to leave, folks. We ain't done yet. Jesus ain't done with you yet. Be making all noise back here. You guys done distracting me? Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just playing with them. Let's get to number three. The last one that I want to share with you this morning is simply this. You must remain convicted. You must remain convicted. Verse number seven, the Bible says, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And this brings great glory to my father. So I remember reading this phrase and hearing, ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And I was like, come on, Jesus, I need a car. We treat God in this phrase the same way we do treat, let's make a deal on TV or the price is right. You ever watch those folks, that thing spinning like, oh, hit a car, I need a car. That's how we are with Jesus. Because after all, it says, ask for anything you want and it will be granted. I'm like, come on now. It's almost like grab the dice. (laughs) Mama needs a new pair of shoes. And it's foolishness, right? I'm, I'm, I'm being goofy and foolish, but this is how we live our life of faith. Let me just ask Jesus for whatever I want, because after all, it's going to be granted. Whole theologies have been built around this one portion of scripture that says, if I just ask, I have it that I deserve it somehow because I've just asked for it. Let me name it and claim it. Let me speak prosperity into, I'm not naming folks, I'm just, I mean, it sounds good. I mean, who wouldn't want the thought of that? 
if I ask, it's mine. After all, what I say, we all want our own way. So if I ask, it has to be mine. And I remember, I remember actually feeling this way at one point in my life. I was living for Christ. I was serving him and I was fairly successful in a secular business. And, and, um, and I had an opportunity to just make so much more. And I felt, oh my gosh, my heart is connected to Jesus. I'm going to make a bunch of money. I'm going to give it to a bunch of people, and it's going to be awesome. And, and, and I just started asking God for prosperity, and I started asking God to expand and explode my business. I started asking him for materialistic things, not realizing that it was settling in my spirit that I had become this way. And I tell you what, this is what I felt in my heart, and this is what God spoke to me. And it took, now understand me. I'm not the one who, if you say something that's an aha moment for you, it's usually not going to be an aha moment for me. I got to experience some pain before it becomes an aha moment for me. It's just that headstrong, stubborn folk that I am. And I remember God speaking to my heart in that moment. And trust me, I had to get to a really bad and dark place to hear it. But he said to me, are you in love with the blessing or are you in love with the one who blesses? And I felt the punch in my gut that I couldn't even breathe. Because in that moment, I realized that I had lost my conviction for who Christ was in my life. You have to remain convicted. We have to be convicted that the monotonous and the mundane is actually the reward in our lives. The journey is the reward. The iron sharpening iron is the reward. The uncomfortable conversations with people who we empower and trust in our lives, that's the reward, not what comes because of it. What comes because of it, bring that down some please. What comes because of it is just simply the byproduct of my already being rewarded. Do you love the blessing or do you love the one who blesses? You have to understand that time spent with God develops the fruit that Jesus likes. The fruit that he sees glory in. After all, what does it say in verse number 8? When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. And let me just, can I just tell you something really quickly? All of our fruit should be the same. Not all of our gifts, not all of our blessings, not all of our talent, not all of our skills, not all of our space and place in life, but all of our fruit should be the same. And so what is this fruit? Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And let me just help you something with something really quickly I want you to notice what it does not say, because this has jacked me up before, okay? It does not say produces this kind of fruits. Because what we do is we individualize them and suggest that there's a fruit of love, a fruit of joy, a fruit of peace, a fruit of patience, a fruit of kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what we say about the fruits. But... It doesn't say that. And if you study scripture and you study not only the context, but just go back to English class 
and understand the actual tense of the word. The word fruit in its tense is not meaning multiple by any means. It's meaning collectively one as a whole. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you are full of the Spirit, then you have nine of them all operating at once in your life. That's what remaining in Christ looks like. Now that sounds like ridiculous foolishness because after all, we may love well, but not be patient. And this is true. We will each in some way, shape, or form struggle with one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit that, that, is, that Jesus wants us to bear. I'll be honest, one of my greatest struggles in life is patience. I am not a patient person. I want what I want now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. I want it now. Just being real. But this fruit only comes when we've allowed Christ to prune us, to cut branches away, to throw those branches then in the fire to be burned. Not to be grafted back in and say, you know what, I think I think I can get that branch to get back into the vine and, and maybe then it'll produce fruit. No, if it's not producing fruit, Jesus wants to cut it and burn it. So what does that look like for your life? What needs to be cut and burned in your life? Rather, what relationships need to be cut and burned in your life? What thought processes need to be cut and burned in your life because they're keeping you from experiencing the miraculous that God has for you? So I'm going to give you three I'm going to give you three quick things to keeping it practical for you. If you're going to remain connected, take 10, 15, 20 minutes, start somewhere and read five verses of scripture in the Bible. Open the book of John and read verses chapter 1 verse 1 through 5. Take 10, 15, 20 minutes to do it. And then ask yourself two questions. What does this say about God and what does this say about me? Or what does it reveal about me? What does this say about God and what does this reveal about me? If you've been doing the 10, 15, 20 minute thing with God for a while, how about you kick it up a notch to maybe 40, 45, 50, even an hour of time spent in the word with God. And you might be looking, how on earth do I do that? How do I find an hour? You make it. It's worth it. An hour less sleep to be in the word. An hour less in front of the television to be in the word. An hour less on the phone to be in the word. An hour less to be in the word doesn't make it you. I don't care what you put there. An hour less with your wife to be in the word. Ooh, I know. But it's true. What does it say about God and what does it reveal about me? Get going somewhere every day. Make it a habit. If you're going to remain committed this practical application is the easiest thing of them all. It's real simple. Let me just tell you how simple it is. Be committed to his word. Be committed to holiness. Be committed to walking out on sin. <laughs> yeah, I know. I said it was simple. Simple to say. Difficult to do. Let me tell you something real practical that I, I employ in my own life about being, uh, staying holy. It is when I begin to put my eyes upon something that is unholy. I practice one real quick thing. I bounce my eyes from what I'm looking at. If it's a lustful thing and another, another woman, I bounce my eyes from looking at that. If it's riches that, I, that distract me, then I bounce my eyes from looking. It's all about perspective. I have to change my perspective. I'm no longer going to look at this because this is what's tempting. I'm going to look at Jesus. 
I'm going to find something else to focus on. And, and, and as far as walking out on sin, the Bible's very, very clear. You'll never be tempted in sin beyond your ability to escape. There is an escape every single time you are tempted. Not most of the times, not sometimes. Every single time there is an escape. Before you even put your feet to the floor in the morning, God help me to see the escape. See, don't nobody pray like that. They all pray, hold my heart, give me a good day, give me blessings, give me favor. No, no, no. Help me to see the escape, God, because if I can escape today, I can live again to fight another day. If I can escape today, I can live again to fight another day. And the last one is to remain convicted. Get yourself into a relationship with someone who will sharpen you, not teach you, not coach you, not develop you, sharpen you.